0: Got a guest in the studio, and he knows all about the Olympics and he, because he's married to an Olympian, and that is Mick Collis. But he's here to talk about Australia's toughest sports people. A new book, 12 Athletes, who epitomise the grit, courage and determination of Australian sport. And the front cover, a beautiful photo, that memorable photo of the centenary test, Rick McCosker. This is how it played out in 1977.
1: So Willis again.
0: Sean, he's pulled it on.
1: Hit him in the face. He's hit him in the face, he's dragged it onto his wicket. McCosker looks as though he's got a nasty cut there, seems as though he's spitting out some blood and the England players immediately call in for something to come on and give him some treatment. That looks to be a nasty one. Let's see if we can uh, determine where it hits McCosker. McCosker going for the hook, fails to move sufficiently in the line and inside the line and takes a blow, I would say, about on the cheek. It goes onto his hand, and then he drags it down onto his stumps. Well, that was a most unlucky dismissal. Well, that is a bad beginning for Australia. Two weeks down for 13. In comes Greg Chapel.
0: Australia's toughest sportspeople. people, Mick Collis joins us in the studio. Uh, bring back memories, Mick. Hello, Goss. I've never heard that before.
1: It's, it's fantastic to hear. I've seen it, obviously, the video, but I've never heard that commentary, and it's um, fantastic.
0: Really good. It was, 1977, and it does have the face of Mick McCoskey on the front cover of your wonderful book, 288 pages. It is absolutely beautiful. It is Australia's toughest sports people. And that, that's him having his jaw, um, well, he's bandaged, is that famous photo, swollen cheek, and he went out to bat in the second innings.
1: Yeah, it's bizarre because when he when he said he, he got hit and uh, talking about he tried to play the hook shot, uh, he was saying that there's a, a, a an unwritten rule that you never play a cross-bat shot in the first innings at the mcg <laughs> and he said as he willis was walking in bowling and he knew he was going to bowl a short one and he's in his head never play a cross-bat shot but he, he said all the um, luminaries up in the stand he said don bradman was up there because it was the big centenary test and said you know what would bradman do in this stage and he said so i'm going to try and hook it and he tried to do the cross-bat shot and hit him in the head and he said it's gone onto it onto the stumps and his first thought was he's out so he just started walking off and then it turned out they just thought he'd, he'd bruised his jaw, so they just left him alone in the change rooms and then they went and saw him a couple of hours later and he's, it was swollen up like a balloon, so they sent him off to hospital for the x-rays and it came back that it, um, it had actually broken his jaw.
0: And showed great courage because he, he played on in the test match. And
1: it was bizarre because... And I asked him... And the funny thing about all these people I spoke to, they all thought what they did was normal, that anyone would have done it. And I, think, well, I don't think I would have done something like that. But he said the reason he wanted to get out, it was the biggest test in Australian history... Uh, he'd scored four runs, and that was. And he said his only other time he'd been on the field was when he uh, met the Queen. So he said he actually wanted to be a part of that <laughs> Test match, and, and scoring four runs for him wasn't. He didn't feel like he'd played a big enough part, so he just said, "I wanted to. I wanted to play more in that Test match," and that was the reason why he, he did it.
0: And no helmets back then.
1: No helmets, and even he said when they when they took him to the hospital, he still doesn't know why they didn't operate straight away. And there was a one of the VFL doctors was happened to be there when he was there, and they made a little splint for his mouth and then just put the bandage around it. So he said if if it had been different circumstances they had have operated, well, he wouldn't have been able to do that. But the fact that this bloke just put this splint on and they bandaged him, he thought, well, I can still walk around. So he just got himself and his whites and (laughs) went back to the MCG.
0: Mick Collis, our guest, author, writer, sports commentator, guest speaker, modern-day poet, and, of course, as we do know, he competed for Australia in the World Sudoku, uh, uh, Sudoku Championships. Married to an Olympian, so this is a special time.
1: Yeah, so Sharon, she was yeah nine years in the Australian women's team. So um, she's over there in Tokyo at the moment is that we, right? with the broadcasters. Yeah, so she's um, if you pan, when they pan across the ground or the the pool, and you'll see one lone masked lady sitting just down on the in the seats just behind the players. <laughs> that's um, that's my missus.
0: So she's is she commentating on what we're watching.
1: No, so she so she's she's the, a host broadcaster. Commenter. She's with the host. So she's um, she's a spotter. So she's the director's eye. So if she sees the Hungarian coach going off, she'll say Hungarian coach going off and the director will say, oh, camera seven, okay. Hungarian coach. So okay. she's kind of there helping helping. the how, how do the you show. score
0: a gig like that? Well, she
1: commentated in Sydney. Yep. And then for Athens, they said you can either commentate or be a spotter. And she said, well, what's the difference? And they said, well, the commentary is going to be done from Melbourne or be a spotter, <laughs> you go to Athens. So she said, oh, I don't know what a spotter is, but I'll go to Athens. So she's <laughs> so she spotted at each of the Olympics since um, since then. So oh, well, it's been a great little gig for her.
0: That's smart by her. Yeah. Um, and what did she, has she given you a, the lowdown on what the mood is like over there in Tokyo because of the lack of crowds and lack of atmosphere? It's,
1: it's weird, but she said, and I've been, since she noticed it, I've been, I've been watching it. She said, even though there's no crowd, she said, from the athlete's point of view, that even though it'd be nice for them to have the crowd, the emotion, it doesn't affect the emotion. So she said she was watching the um, the men's water polo game against whoever they played the other night. She said, you know, if they'd score a goal, like they're still slapping the water and cheering. And you saw that Tunisian kid that won the 400. Yep. Like he was just going absolutely yeah. nuts. And there was no one there. But for him, and whether there was crowd there or not, the emotion that they've got is, is, is internal. Mm. So she said from an athlete's point of view, what's happening in the actual field of play doesn't change. But obviously, from an atmosphere point of view, it's, it's um, very weird.
0: Mick Collis, our guest in the studio here, has penned a wonderful book called Australia's Toughest Sports People. We'll get more onto the book in a moment about the dozen athletes who epitomise the grit, the courage and determination of Australian sport. On that subject, in regards to sort of uh, driving your own emotion, I just saw a post last night on social media from the Adelaide Crows where they interviewed Matthew Nix... Sorry, they didn't interview Matthew Nix. They were in the rooms prior to the game uh, where Adelaide were playing and he said, no-one is going to be at this game, but there's going to be 250,000 people watching on TV back in Adelaide. They're with you. You have got to make it like an occasion for them and they will see if you're not zoned in on the moment. It's an interesting Good one, and point. it probably goes yeah. probably goes for the Olympians as well.
1: Yeah, and you yeah, I mean you think this this Olympics is it's the made-for-tv Olympics because that's the only way anyone can watch it. And mm. I think there's probably more interest in it now because that is the only way you can see it.
0: I would have also thought, I know this is and don't forget, we've got plenty coming up in regards to what's taking place. We've got the men's hockey, Australia versus Argentina starts in 15 minutes for that one. So a big game for, of course, the Kookaburras. Just in regards to um, Japan and the um, the stadiums and the state of the art stadiums and everything and the infrastructure in place, I was surprised that Brisbane got the Olympics in eleven years' time mm. when they probably could have said, "Hey Japan, hey Tokyo, let's do it again." Because in twelve years' time, things fingers crossed will be back to normal. You'd hope so. Yeah. And you've got it all there.
1: It's, yeah, I I found it. And especially when St. Brisbane was the only one that bid. So I, it wouldn't have hurt them to say, well, Brisbane, you can have 36 because I'm sure there'll be no other bidders for, for 36. Yeah. And, yeah, give it to Tokyo again because it's... It's there. It is. I mean, it's a sh- I mean, they got the Rugby World Cup in 2019, so they actually got to use some of the stuff. But mm. all that brand-new Olympic Stadium wasn't there for the Rugby mm. World Cup. So,
0: mm.
1: yeah, I mean, and yeah, the poor Japanese. I think they have spent something like $30 billion. Mm. And I don't know what they've got back in terms of... I don't know whether the IOC have given them some sort of sweetener as a, a sorry about the world, but yeah, you'd think, and unless it's in Sydney where they wanted to knock down that Olympic Stadium in 20 years after it was built, I yeah. think the Japanese had built things probably a lot better. Uh, so yeah, I'm completely with you. I think give it back to them in 30 because they would have done a, They would have done a great Olympic. Correct. Race, Correct. Tokyo is such a fantastic city, and I think it would have been. It's a real shame that they've had that taken away from them. <laughs>
0: Welcome back. It's 19 past eight. Tim Gossage in with Mick Collis, journalist, author, um, keynote speaker, very funny man, and former Australian representative in Sudoku. We're here, of course, Big Gals Brew Shed, which is, of course, brewed on the premises, home brew supplies and kegs for occasional in the Rose Lane Centre in Bunbury. The schedule, as it looks right now, at the moment, Owen Wright is in the water for the men's quarterfinal against uh, Luca Messinas. Of Peru in the surfing. Still to come, we've got shooting for Australia. We've got the pool A match, Australia, the Cooker versus Argentina, which starts shortly. And later this morning, something close to your heart, Meek, is the Aussie Sevens uh, taking on New Zealand in the Rugby Sevens at nine thirty our time. Are you into the Sevens as much as you are in the real stuff? Uh it's a bit, te- it's a bit big bash, isn't
1: it's, it? It's yeah, it is, it is. But it's, I, I really, I prefer watching the women's. I reckon the women's Sevens fantastic. So I'd rather watch women's Sevens than men's Sevens. Okay. Because I just, they, I love the way they play.
0: The book, what inspired you to write the book? And Mick Collis is our guest, Australia's toughest sports people. It's all about the grit, the courage and the determination of Australian sport. And how did you get it down to 12? Well,
1: I, I, you know, we talked about Rick McCosker. So I remember that when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy, John Sattler, um, who was a rugby league player, broke his jaw in the 1970 rugby league grand final and played the whole game with a broken jaw. And so I, I'd heard those stories when I was a kid and they just kind of stuck in the back of my head. And then I remember vividly in 1996 when um, Gillian Rolton fell off Peppermint Grove at the Atlanta Olympics and had she broke her collarbone and then had to get back on to keep Australia in the hunt for the gold medal, which they went on and won. And when she did that, I just I remember just thinking, I think maybe because her horse was called Peppermint Grove and I was renting a place in Claremont with some mates, so <laughs> I'd come across from Sydney and I thought, oh, this is all really surreal. <laughs> and that just kind of stuck in my head. And then I, I guess I'd always thought about doing it and then I, I started doing it about, four years ago because I knew John Sattler was getting old. So I thought, well, I want to get him before he either gets crook or dies or whatever it might be. So that sort of was the inspiration to try and do it was to get him. And then, um, yeah, just kind of did a bit of research. I probably had half a dozen. Then as I started doing it, you, other people tell you stories. Yes. Or you, you, you sort of find find out things that you didn't know. And one of the guys in there, Curtis McGrath, I spoke at a um, a lunch on the Gold Coast at Burley Surf Club and Curtis was just in the crowd and the MC kind of pointed him out and said, oh, this is Curtis McGrath, and told his story. And I thought, oh, mate, that oh, can you be in my book? He, Who's Curtis McGrath? So he was a, he was a soldier in, in Afghanistan and he uh, he trod on a landmine, blew both his legs off, and he was the medic for his little platoon. So he's had to basically uh, do his own medic. So he had to put his own tourniquets on. his so, he, so his legs have been blown off and he's had the presence of mind. He said he kind of woke up and, and said, okay, my legs are missing. Started putting tourniquets on. His mates came across. He was telling them, "I've got to get an IV drip. I've got to get all this." And I'm thinking, "That's he was doing that on himself." And then, as I um stretching him out of Afghanistan, he said, the, "You know, the guys. He said it was pretty traumatic for the for the, his mates to see him like that." I think it would have been traumatic for you as well, because, oh. yeah, for his, for his mates to see him like that. And he, as he was being stretched out, he said to them, "Fellas, don't worry. I'll go to the Paralympics." And everyone's kind of then they started laughing at him. And then so and so that was. That was four years before Rio, and at Rio he won a gold medal uh, kayaking, and he's currently in Tokyo trying to defend his um, his gold medal.
0: Astonishing, just
1: unbelievable. And, Astonishing. He said, uh, and he said he said he could reach his hand around under his leg and feel his femur.
0: Astonishing,
1: and and just uh, and it was just, and he lost. He said he lost thirty kilos in in his rehab, as uh, in in the hospital, because they said he was running his body trying to heal was the equivalent of running a marathon a day. And he went from ninety kilos to sixty kilos by the time I got to the hospital. And he said he wanted to be standing when his mates got off the plane coming back from Afghanistan. He wanted to be standing there to greet them, and um, and that's what he did. Is so, that
0: is that the best story in the book? Do you think? If that if you had to cherry pick one of the twelve? I, I think in terms of that's a story I have no idea. Yeah, I don't
1: even know he's at the Paralympics. Yeah, he's at the Paralympics. Yeah. So so in, for, for sheer just disbelief of a situation that one gets it. Like, to to treat yourself when your legs have been blown off and then, and yeah, mate, just extraordinary. And just a really, just a good young
0: bloke. Australia's Toughest Sports People is the book. 12 Athletes Who Epitomise the Grit, the Courage and Determination of Australian Sport. Mick Collis, the author, is in studio. Um, Dean Jones has left us, tragically and suddenly. Had you interviewed him prior for yeah, the book, yes. obviously? Yeah, I, I got yep.
1: him about a, a year before he died and... um. I'd never met Dean before. Obviously, one of my boyhood heroes. Just everyone loved Jonesy, and and uh, I spent an hour and a half with him. Just at a little cafe in Victoria, and um, I was gutted when he died because I, I just I really he's one of these guys that you you just instantly warm to, and he was old school. And when I told him what I was doing, he said, "Oh, mate, you know I'd love to be part of that because he thinks kids today are too soft and they need to know that you've got to put in the hard work." And and his whole his whole um, the way that he was his his old man was a bit of a hard taskmaster. He said he'd be he'd um, He'd be getting home from school, and he'd, he'd go to cricket training, and he'd ring his old man up from the station, about two k's from home, and he had all his you know his cricket gear, and he'd ring his old man and say, "Can I get a lift home?" And his old man would say, "Well, mate, you didn't bat on the w- very well on the weekend. Maybe you should walk home and think about it." <laughs> so he said he would drag his bag home for for two days, and, and he played under 19s, and he scored a hundred for Australia. And he said, "You know, he would have been. He doesn't like any of that. He calls it peewee cricket. Doesn't like all that junior stuff. He thinks he would have been better off." Uh, so a hundred in in under nine level for Australia wasn't as good as 100 playing for Carlton against Melbourne in senior cricket. So he was one of these guys that just – he was just old school. He said he saw guys getting injected and he saw Keith Stackpole getting hit and going back out. And he thought, for me to play cricket, that's just what the expectation is. So he didn't second-guess anything that he did. He think, if I want to be here, that's what I need to be and that's that's how you've got to be. And, and so – and he was talking about, you know, if, if a kid's fat – you tell him mate, you're fat, you gotta go for a run, you know? And he says, kids today you're a bit sick. I'll go inside. We say, Well, no, that's not the way it's gotta be. You've got to get you've got to work hard. So he loved that he was able to actually express these opinions that he had, which are probably a little bit politically incorrect nowadays, but he was just old school, tough, and I, yeah, I love spending time with him. It was, it was fantastic.
0: More on the book in a moment. We're going to come back. I'm going to ask you about Steve Bradbury's in the book, and we're st- going to talk about it so much more. And where can we get the book? Where can people... I mean, all good bookshops and all bad ones, on it's, it, I'm
1: sure. It's everywhere. So, it's, yeah, so it's all like Collins, Dimmicks, Target, Big W, independent bookshops, online. It's, it's everywhere.
0: An Aussie update. Thanks to your Australian-made furniture specialists, Harvey Norman, Bunbury Furniture. On Sandridge Road, Bunbury. Yes, welcome back. Great news. Owen Wright, the Aussie, is through the quarterfinal stage. He's defeated Luca Messinas in the surfing, of course, at uh, Suriga Sakaki Beach, 12.74. Owen Wright to Messinas 7.83. Currently, the Aussies are in action against Argentina in men's hockey. And I can tell you, it is rather wet there. What sport takes your fancy, Mick Collis? Mick Collis is in the studio. We're talking about his new book, uh, released as of today. Today, yeah. Today, officially. Yeah, I know. We're very honoured that you be here. Australia's toughest sports people. Great book, Rick McCosker, on the cover. Apart from water polo, which is close to your heart. Yep. What's the one viewing sport that you love and... Did you know that Ariane Titmus won? Did she? I, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I actually do. I do enjoy... I always like watching the Australian Swimming Championships. Uh, this year it went... Uh, it was on Amazon, it wasn't on free-to-air, which was a bit of a shame. But I, I, I do enjoy the swimming because I've, I've swum a little bit and I know those people are so much fun. Like, they're so much better than me. And I think when I can actually put into... <laughs> so, like, so with, say, a 200 say oh yeah if it was a, a 200 for the time that they can do 200 I can be almost doing 100 and so they're they're twice you going flat chat. and I'm going flat out and they're twice as fast as me and I I find that when we've got the same arms and legs and they can be <laughs> that much quicker that's something that I can actually relate to and I find that 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 that's what blows me away, and even like the fifteen hundred, they go like I've never. I, I might do a, a fifty metre swim in say fifty minute, in fifty seconds, in in the fifteen hundred, they'll do hundred metres in under a minute each time. So that it's they're they're double my speed, and it's just it's phenomenal. I don't know how they do
0: it. Argentina have gone one nil up against the Cooker burras from a penalty corner. Big flick past the goalkeeper Andrew Charter, so one nil up, and Argentina lead in the men's hockey. All righty, back to the book. Australia's toughest sports people. It's out now. You can get it at all book bookshops. So fantastic. Rick McCosker, John Sattler, who you've touched on rugby league, Alyssa Campbell, Ariel Skiing, Dean Jones, and a couple of football ones. In fact, you've got three footy players: Robert Dippier, Domenico, Dermot Brereton, and Hayden Button Jr. Just in a nutshell, explain why they're in your book.
1: So Dipper and Dermy from that classic '89 grand final, and again, I'm you know I'm not an AFL fan, but even I, I knew that one. And it's funny, Dean Jones talked about sitting at that grand final, mm. watching those two mm. blokes, and how how in awe the Australian cricket team were of Dermy and Dipper.
0: Can I tell you about '89? I was with um, a whole lot of boys from Woburn, um, from Del Wollanu, and we were at a place in, well, they were down, they the pickets of uh, Roger Piggott and and Big Bluey Piggott, Shane Piggott and a whole lot of uh, mates. And I drew out Shane Hamilton. It was a drinking game. And Shane Hamilton barely touched the footy in the first (laughs) half. I thought, how good is this? He came on. He ended up with 23 disposals. (laughs) I could not scratch myself by the end of it. Shane (laughs) Hamilton. He went from Geelong to the Brisbane Lions and fell off the face of the earth. But I remember getting him. I thought, wow. And that was the 89 grand final. But you're right. That was the game where... Dipper ended up in a bad way and Dermy got nailed by Mark Yates.
1: Yeah, so so um Dermy was basically the first bounce yeah. and, and got belted. And and he said he knew he was in trouble. And he had this, he talks about when he first joined Hawthorne, they said to him, you know, he was you know, 15 or 16, whatever he was, and they said, if you get injured, the first thing you do is you you gotta get back to your feet, take the position, and then you work out what's wrong with you. Yeah. So he said throughout his that that was just drilled into him from a young age. So he got belted. Tried to stand up, he thought, "No, I can't stand up." He, and he went down on his hands and knees. They all come out, and he said he knew he'd um, he knew he'd broken a rib because I think he said he he broke a rib on Peter Dacos's head <laughs> earlier in his career. He'd tried to bounce him and missed it and stuffed up. So he said, "I knew I'd broken my rib," and then he just he just said what he did. He just he'd take a step and then he'd just scream. And he said, "I'd take a step and I'd scream." Takes it, and he said he kept on that till he stopped screaming, and then he said he just took himself back to his position, and he, then he likened it. I think he said it was um, Sonny Gavaskar. He watched him play cricket, and he got a hundred. And after he got a hundred, he said he just cleared his mind and said, "Okay, I'm starting again." And so he said, when he was standing there, he said, "Okay, Sonny Gavaskar, that's what's happened. I'm going to clear my mind. and I'm just going to start again." And just again, that that, and then you see the vision of him after that effect, yep. like that, where he goes back and takes that mark, yep. and and is you know thrown to the ground with with broken uh, ribs and a, and a split kidney, and to think that how how to do that. Like, that was – and he just said – some of the, the other guys in the team just said that inspired them so much to – because it all went to custody because Ablett scored that goal within, you know, five seconds or whatever it was. And it's funny, Billy Brownless, <laughs> he was saying that the thing that annoyed him about it, I think it was Billy Brownless, um, he said they all knew that it was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and he said he was too busy watching Ablett score that he actually missed watching Dermot get hit. And he <laughs> said that's his biggest regret <laughs> in the game is he actually didn't get to see it happen.
0: And Dipper Domenico, I remember with Dipper. So Dipper played out the game yep. and, and went to hospital. And I'm sure they crossed to him live after... I think they were at the Hawthorne... I stand corrected on this. They were at the Hawthorne f- uh, team function and they crossed live to the to the hospital? Well,
1: because I, I know he said he... So he uh, punctured his lung and, and broke yeah. it. Yeah. And he said his body... And he, he said his voice was going really high throughout the game and he didn't know why. And he said because he punctured the lung, his chest cavity was... The pressure was building up, and it was pushing up on his vocal cords. So that's he didn't know what was going on. Wow. So he's finally the final siren's gone, and um, and then he said the trainers came out, and he, he sort of said, "Oh, you're, in, you're no good here." And he said, "That's when I know I was in trouble because normally they spray with a sponge and on you go." So when he said once the training, I was in trouble. He knew I was in trouble. <laughs> rushed him to hospital, and he said he was lying on the um, the silver thing at the hospital, and. And he thought, he thought he was going to die. He said he, there was a priest or someone talking in his ear and he said a nurse there's just come in, pulled the curtain away and he said jammed like a knitting needle into his chest to let the pressure out. Wow. And he spent something like five days in intensive care. So he reckoned he nearly died. He said there was only two people that have been that crook and risen and he said he's one of them.
0: <laughs> nice work by Dipper. It is a, a great read. And the Hayden Button Jr. Now, is this the testicle
1: that's story? That's te- the testicle wow, story. that is just, <laughs> And that's one thing, you like when you're... People say, oh, what'd he do? And that's the one thing. So he was playing for Subiaco and it was uh, the last uh, game of the season and they were going to make the four. That was all fine. I think they were playing East from Mandel, and they weren't going to make the four, so that was fine. So that, the game, there was no... It was, the outcome didn't affect the latter at all. Mm-hmm. But Austin Robertson, who was playing with um, Hayden, who went, went on to work um, and set up World Series cricket with Correct. Kerry Packer, Correct. he was needed 15 goals to break the record for the most number of goals in the home and away season. So that the whole aim of the team was to get Austin Robertson the ball. He said, they'd be in front of goals and they'd kick it back to Austin Robertson. <laughs> that's all they did was get him the ball. And Hayden Button said he turned around to take a mark and a, a guy's come through and need him in the groin. And he thought, oh, that hurt a little bit. And he said he's pulled his jockstrap apart to have a look and he said he split his scrotum oh. and as he's lifted his jockstrap, he said his testicle has actually rolled down his leg. Oh. So he said he's looking at it there hanging on its cord oh. and, and he said the East Romantle trainer's come out because the East Romantle guys have said, oh, there's a problem here. <laughs> And he said the trainers come out with a wad of gauze, just basically picked up his nurry, stuck it back under his jock strap and put some tape around it. And he said he's kept playing. And I said, did, did you have any inclination that you might want to go off? And he said, no, because I had to get Austin the ball because I was one of the main guys to get in the ball. So I said, okay. Went off at half time they've gone into the sheds and the doctor has said, you, you, you can't go back on. And Hayden was the captain coach. And he said, look, doc, you're the doctor. I'm the coach. I'm going back on. So he said all they did, they just taped it up. Yeah. He went out, played the second half, lost, Austin got his goals. And he went off, and they said he stitched him up, put 15 stitches, one for every goal, in um, <laughs> and his he, and he in the changes after the game. And then he said he spent the next week just standing in the ocean trying oh, to get the swelling down because he had a semi-final to oh, play the next love week. It.
0: That is the great it's story. That is yeah. a great story. And he's such a hard. He's still a hard oh, old bloke yeah. now.
1: And he's just, uh, but just terrific listening to a bloke like that. Yeah, he doesn't
0: that show stuff. up to any of the functions. He gets invited as a guest of one of many, many, many Suey functions. Really, he just doesn't, doesn't rock up. Yeah, okay. He, I know he hasn't been all that well in more recent times, but, gee, what a great of the game he is. And the last one for you, and I know there's plenty. So we're, we're speeding to Mick Collins. If you haven't seen this book, well, you wouldn't have because it's only going on sale today. Australia's toughest sports people. It's absolutely brilliant. Soft cover. It's got some photos, pictures in the middle, which I absolutely love, and great stories. 288 pages, if yes. I remember rightly. Yeah, Quite a weighty stuff. tome. It's I a, it, it certainly is. You get bang. for Yeah, buck um i want to ask why is steve bradbury in the book
1: well interesting so everyone that's the one thing people say yep the other the other 11 i get but why have you got steve bradbury because everyone thinks steve bradbury rocked up the olympics in 2002 didn't fall over and won a gold medal but he he won his first world title and his only world title when he was 17 and he was one of the world's best skaters for for about 12 or so years in 1994 he was in a world cup event and, um, and he was racing and there was a, an accident in front of him and one of the skaters in front has gone down on one knee so his skate is, is pointing up in the air. Mm-hmm. Bradbury was part of the, the accident. He was in the air and he said he landed and basically impaled his quad oh. on the uh, up-pointed blade of this guy's skate.
0: Are you having breakfast or not having breakfast right he now? He said it's
1: gone into his leg.
0: I've gone from a testicle to a <laughs> sliced
1: quad. It's gone into his leg and then ripped out of his leg and he said so he was lying on the ice... And he didn't know it had happened until he looked behind and there was just a trail of blood behind him. And he said, everyone's got about six litres of blood. He lost four litres in about 20 seconds because his heart rate was about 200. He said it was just pumping out. Canadian doctor came out, whacked the tourniquet on. They took him to hospital and they ended up putting 131 stitches or something in his leg. Then he was back skating within, you know, two weeks or something rather after that. And then about two years before his 2002 games, again, they were having just a training training day and he said he's had an accident gone head first into the barrier and broken his neck and he said he didn't know it he knew it was hurt but didn't think anything of it so he kept training and then he kept complaining about it so then when x-rayed him and said yeah you've broken your neck oh so they put him in one of those um the halo, halo things And he yep. said that was the most painful thing because yeah. he said for the first time they inject um some painkiller into your head yep. before they screw the bolts in but yep. he said when they tighten them they don't give you any painkillers so, so that was, you could hear the the spanner screwing these screws into his brain, into his skull. Oh. And then he got that off and then yeah, and then went and then went on to win the World Cup of the World of Olympic title yeah. in his fourth Olympics. And he said he felt a bit he said he got booed when he went out to go and get his medal, but he thought that he, he was going to accept it for not for that one race, but for the, yeah, the sixteen and rightfully years so, or whatever it was. Rightfully so. Well, see, that got him to that see
0: that's what you get in this book. You you get the real story, yeah, the whole story, the not story. just the incident, it's the backstory of yeah. it. It is a wonderful book. Uh, 0487 736 736 can you sign a copy for us yeah mate absolutely okay so f- for we we re- we really want um a sto- uh, just send us tell us where you're listening to uh, the show this morning our uh, sen olympic coverage Mick Collis in the studio author uh, presenter of course and uh, world were you captain or vice captain i was the vice captain vice captain and on that
1: you know now that brisbane's got it we're going to we're going to lobby very hard to make it a demonstration sport <laughs> in the 2032 Olympics.
0: Sudoku Championship. If you haven't seen Mick speak about that real story too. Uh, so uh, i tell you what, Australia's trailing 1-0 in the hockey with about three minutes to go, going upstairs to get a review of a penalty corner right there. Text us now, 0487 736 736. All we need to know is where you're listening to us this morning. Whereabouts are you? name? Your name? your suburb or your town, 0487 736, 736 And you'll go in the draw for this wonderful day of day of release book, Australia's Toughest Sports People, 12 Athletes, who epitomise the grit, the courage and determination of Australian sport. It's authored uh, written by Mick Collis, beautifully presented. And you can go in the draw for this, texting 0487 736 736. Mick, thanks for coming in. My
1: pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me.